Hello and welcome to this episode of the Golden Age of Cricket podcast, a show where we revisit the characters, statistics, matches and tales of that cricket period immediately preceding the First World War. My name is Tom Ford. When it comes to giants of Australian cricket, there are few who stand larger than Warwick Armstrong. Described as the WG Grace of the Antipodes, he was an all-round phenomenon whose stature in cricket both physically and figuratively, has rarely been surpassed. Emerging in the first years of the 20th century, he defied many of the game's oldest laws and customs, played cricket to win regardless of its spirit, and stood firm against an emerging dictatorial cricket establishment. When he retired after leading the all-conquering 1921 Australians in England, he was universally praised as a champion of the game. But it's his early years as a lanky, defiant all-rounder in the golden age of cricket which concerns us today. My guest in this episode needs little introduction. Gideon Haig has written close to 50 books and contributed to more than 100 publications, including the Times of London, The Guardian, The Times of India and The Australian. His 2001 biography, The Big Ship, Warwick Armstrong and the Making of Modern Cricket, was awarded the Jack Pollard Trophy And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Gideon to the podcast today. Gideon, hello. Hello, Tom. Nice to be back talking about Warwick Armstrong 25 years after I wrote this book. But um, we'll be testing the limits of my memory. But look, he is a memorable cricketer. And um, when I wrote the book, I called it uh, Warwick Armstrong and the Making of Modern Cricket. Um, I used it advisedly because I think he does anticipate many of the... uh, dilemmas that cricket continues to face about um, how far is too far when uh, when you're taking the game to the limits of um, the laws and its underlying spirit. You're on record as saying, and I quote, I'd always wanted to read a book about Warwick Armstrong, but it seemed unlikely I would have the opportunity unless I wrote one myself. Why do you think writers avoided choosing Armstrong as a subject for so long? It's um, a good question. Uh, there was a pamphlet written by Rad Grace, who was the president of the Australian Cricket Society in Victoria for some years. That was the only book that was around, and it was pretty sketchy and mainly taken from secondary sources. I think, uh, I mean, he's not an immediately appealing personal figure in the way that, you know, a winsome trumper or a dignified noble or a, a pugilistic Joe Darling is from, from, from the golden age. Um, he, he, do, he actually makes a slightly ironic fit with the golden age, which is, you know, defined in terms of its chivalry and its sportsmanship and its, uh, its amateur grace and, um, and its expansiveness uh, by writers like Neville Carter's. Um, he was always somewhat against the grain of uh, our received image of that period. But in fact, you know, when you begin to pursue his life, you begin to see the Golden Age is a much, much more complex uh, phase of cricket history than the uh, Gilded name suggests. Uh, it's got all the same kind of tensions between uh, sport and commerce and um, 
sportsmanship and uh, graciousness on the field. Um, there's a pretty strong economic underpinning to a lot of the decisions that are made. There's constant arguments between uh, the game and an emerging class of, of bureaucrats. Uh, and Warwick Armstrong kind of dramatises those dilemmas uh, and takes them into the period after the First World War as dramatically as, um, as, as anyone in the history of the game. You wrote uh, your book in, well, published in 2001, which was obviously before the era of Trove, which we all rely on these days for Australian sources, yeah. New, yeah. newspapers. Um, what, what primary sources were uh, of most help to you when writing this? Was Armstrong, for example, a prolific letter writer or diarist? No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and thank you very much for pointing that out. <laughs> I did an awful lot of scrolling through microfiches at the State Library of Victoria to put together the newspaper sources. You know, they were hard to get in those days. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the dark and got a very sore right arm from, from yes. cranking the microfiche machine around. Uh, it's actually, I mean, there is a lot to be said for that style of, of research. Sometimes I think the keyword search gratifies us a little bit too quickly. Uh, we lose touch of the context of the material that, that we're looking for. One of the fascinating features of looking at uh, you know whole pages of, of newsprint rather than single articles is that you get a sense of the of the period, what what else people were thinking about, uh, the general sort of social attitudes, contemporaneous news events. Uh, you get a sense of a stronger sense of what it was like to uh, to be there. And in those days, of course, newspapers were genuine journals of record. Uh, there were no other competing media. Uh, the There was a general sort of fidelity to fact in reporting. You were genuinely crafting the first draft of history. And um, even though Australia was a long way from the rest of the world, uh, it was part of a larger imperium, so you were you were capable of looking at the sort of entire Anglosphere. As far as other collections were concerned, no, um, Warwick was not a particularly prolific letter writer. I don't think I ever actually spied a letter from him. There's a there was a fascinating collection of letters to do with the Big Six dispute, which uh, David Frith gave me access to letters to and from Clem Hill from from 1912. Uh, fantastic collection of uh, photographs by Frank Laver, the Frank Laver collection at the Melbourne Cricket Club. Sid Smith, who was the manager of the 1921 tour of England, uh, had pretty compendious papers at the uh, at the State Library of New South Wales. Uh, when it came to looking at um, contemporaries of Warwick's, uh, New South Wales archives had material on the bankruptcy of Sid Gregory, which was fascinating um, real sort of slice of life of the, of the life of a, an Australian cricketer of that period. Um, UDV archives uh, had access to materials to do with Warwick's post cricket career where he was uh, an agent for uh, Peter Dawson Limited, the, uh, the, the whiskey manufacturer. And of course there were the papers of uh, and the manuscript collections of the Victorian Cricket Association and the Melbourne Cricket Club. Uh, they were great record-keeping organisations, particularly the MCC, and particularly 
so where Warwick was concerned, because Warwick was the pavilion clerk at the uh, MCC from from nineteen ten onwards. So his whole life was uh, was was cricket from from that stage of his career onwards. Uh, he was uh, intensely involved with um, uh, every aspect of cricket organisation and cricket's community. He knew everyone. It was a pretty relatively small and and close knit community. The players were particularly clannish in uh, in in that era, uh, and the Melbourne cricket scene, which was dominated by the Melbourne Cricket Club. Um, you know, basically the same characters were in constant circulation for about 20 years. Warwick knew all of them. Warwick had probably had an argument with all of them. Warwick had been forgiven by all of them because he was such a great cricketer. Uh, so it was an unfolding, almost a family saga that uh, that I was chronicling in the course of uh, Warwick's career. It's a nice segue there because you touched on his at times prickly personality. Um Gideon, for any biographer who spends a considerable amount of time with their subject, it can be hard not to become quite uh, enamoured with their personality, I suppose, over time. But Mm. reading your book, I was left with the impression that you weren't left with a great impression of his personality. Is (laughs) Is that a fair assessment? Well, I was impressed by the forcefulness of his personality by his stubbornness and, and obduracy, uh, by his unapologetic nature, uh, by his charisma. I, I think he, he had a lot of charisma. He was a great leader of men. Um, other cricketers gravitated to him. Um, he was an inspired choice as Australian captain post the First World War. And a lot of cricketers who were hard to impress otherwise uh, regarded him as the best captain that they ever played under. Uh, I think it was one of the reasons why I chose Armstrong as a subject, though, was that he was such a contrast to the the player whose biography I had just written, which was um, Jack Iverson, the mystery spinner. Now, for those of you who read Mystery Spinner, you'll know that, uh, that Jack is a very enigmatic character, a rather sensitive man who never considered himself to be... Uh, a cricketer. He was. He felt like a, a an interloper on the cricket scene. He was possessed of one astonishing gift, but probably the rest of of cricket was a bit of a um, a bit of a mystery to him. Uh, his career was short. Uh, he left a lot of questions hanging. Uh, he said very little in the course of his life about his his approach to the game, and uh, and he he perished in in tragic circumstances well if you're looking for an opposite in every respect you'd be hard pressed to go any further than warwick armstrong a man who knew his value to the last uh penny uh a man who never took a backward step uh against any uh administrative encroacher uh a man who didn't care who he antagonized in the opposition uh, a man who dominated every cricket field that he stepped onto with bat, ball in the field. Uh, a man who always wanted to be involved, who was absolutely sure of his abilities. Uh, there's something kind of um, compelling about that when it comes to writing about them. And I don't think it's necessary for you to become enamoured of a subject in order to appreciate them. Uh, I certainly, I don't think I would have enjoyed spending time in Warwick's company 
but that doesn't prevent me from appreciating him from a distance. Perhaps distance is where he's best appreciated from. Uh, you know, sort of the, the gap of about 80 years made it possible to view him in appropriate and safe perspective. And 80 years better than, say, 22 yards, uh, which we will get to yeah, down the yeah. track uh, regarding hmm. his his bowling. Um, fascinating insight there, Gideon. Thank you. But let's, um, let's return right to the beginning now, and I'm going to test your memory. Um, Warwick Windridge Armstrong was born in the Victorian town of Kyneton on the 22nd of May, 1879. Mm. What or rather who were Armstrong's early cricket influences and was he a immediate cricket success or a prodigy? Look, I mean, every significant player uh, shows promise at an early age. Uh, Warwick was playing... From his uh, from his youth, uh, he played um, with Caulfield Cricket Club. Um, ironically, uh, it was very near to, to where I lived. This is one of the reasons why um, you know, history can be kind of fascinating in the sense that you know you're often walking around the same parts of uh, of a city that uh, that your historical character uh, f- was familiar with. When I started writing the this book, I was living in Balaclava Road, North Caulfield, and it turned out that Warwick's childhood home had been just around the corner. Immediately across the road from that was was uh, Caulfield Park, and there were still um, Warwick's names on on various trophies there in the pavilion. So, in some respects, even though the, the I was eighty years removed, uh, it was almost as though I could simply reach out and touch him. I think he played his first significant. Um, cricket at school for a school called Cumloden, a now long vanished uh, small private school. Uh, also played at, at University College. He played uh, at St Kilda Cricket Club. That was where he played his first games. Uh, he then went to South Melbourne, which was um, uh, the club of his um, of the Australian captain Harry Trott. But then he gravitated towards the Melbourne Cricket Club at the at the first sign of promise. Now the Melbourne Cricket Club uh, has always been a powerful club, both on the field and off. But we're probably talking about Melbourne at the zenith of its influence in the Australian game. It was the de facto seat of government in Australian cricket. Um, we're talking about a period before the advent of the Australian Board of Control, uh, where the associations the state associations are, are, are disunited and, and starveling bodies with with no assets of their own and no access to the revenues that uh, that um, international uh, touring cricket was uh, was making available to the players it's a, it's a player-led cricket economy so by moving to uh, to the Melbourne Cricket Club Warwick was aligning himself with the most powerful presence in the in the cricket land and frankly it kind of suited him um, to be on the side of uh, this 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 mighty establishment because he became a mighty establishment in his own right. So it wasn't it wasn't a mere coincidence that he uh, moved clubs to the Melbourne Cricket Club. He actually wanted to align himself with a powerful body. Well, I think Melbourne was uh, powerful and prestigious and successful, and it was always on the hunt. For cricket talent, this is the days before 
residential boundaries had been established for district cricket, so you could move pretty much where you liked. And uh, if there was a young player around showing promise, as as Warwick was, as an all-rounder at South Melbourne, then Melbourne was bound to come calling. Of course, in due course, his alignment with Melbourne was to create problems for him because of the uh, desire to found uh, an independent, freestanding national cricket body to which uh, Melbourne was um, automatically, um, by definition, a resistor. One of the things I love most about the Golden Age or the so-called Golden Age Gideon is that the prominent characters from this period don't limit themselves to one sport. Um, I was chatting with uh, Bernard Wimpress the other day and he was reminding me about the likes of Clem Hill, uh, won a football premiership Mm -hmm. with uh, South Adelaide, Uh, Joe Darling played for Norwood, Um, and of course Warwick Armstrong famously uh, also played Australian rules football and reached the grand final of the Victorian Football League uh, competition uh, playing for South Melbourne in 1899. And there's a a wonderful team photo, um, as they always uh, sat for before the match, and he's at the back, of course, in the middle, uh, looking quite Mm. the opposite of the figure we came to know him as. He's he's very thin. Yes, Um, yes. But but it's it's just Mm. a wonderful... Uh, thing to remind ourselves that uh, cricketers in those days weren't um, specialists, so to speak. Um, do you think he took his football seriously uh, in those days? I think Warwick took everything seriously. <laughs> there wasn't a, a light-hearted bone in, in Warwick's body. I think in those days, of course, the seasons were safely subdivided, so there was no overlap between them. There was no expectation that you would train for one sport through the off-season of another. Of course, Australian rules football had been designed originally to keep cricketers fit in winter. So in that respect, Warwick was following in a in a great tradition, uh, and a tradition that lasted a, a good deal longer. Of course, Ted McDonald managed to play in the grand final for, uh, for, for Fitzroy, uh, and Cricketers and, and footballers have uh, overlapped well into the into the nineteen eighties. I think he was a good footballer rather than a great footballer. Cricket was a football was a was a pretty tough and physical and low scoring game in those days. It was hard to be an outstanding player. It was a slow moving game. It was not particularly athletic. It was a game of strength. It was a, ga- a game of man on man contest. And as you say that. Warwick's physique in those days probably wasn't conducive to a long career in the game. Certainly, having played in that uh, in that grand final, he doesn't stick around for uh, for very much longer. Uh, and cricket very soon becomes his uh, his solitary pursuit. Of course, it's in uh, you know he's just about to make his debut for Victoria. Um, he's just about he's he's within a couple of years of, of playing cricket for Australia. And after a while, the uh, need to tour over winter is going to preclude him doing anything much but but play cricket. And uh, anything but cricket indeed. What was he uh, doing outside of cricket in terms of a professional career? And did he 
particularly follow in one uh, area? I mean, was he interested in anything outside of cricket? No. The short question to that is no. Um, his careers, such as they were, his periods of employment were intermittent, were a means to an end. They were a way of making money when he wasn't playing cricket. Because frankly, if there was a game of cricket around, Warwick wanted to be involved in it. One of the fascinating things about putting together Warwick's career, and I did my best to create a kind of a chronology of all the games in which he played, was just how incredibly busy he always was playing cricket. Now, if there was a game around of uh, of any description, uh, of any competitive nature, whether it was uh, a, a, an MCC team going to play in the country somewhere or a second 11 game in... Um, in pennant cricket, or a test match, or a, or a tour match, Warwick always wanted to be involved. He's an astonishingly, not just durable cricketer, but an active cricketer. And he wants to dominate every game in which he's involved. You know, he's not a man who gets bored by making runs or taking wickets in any context. He must have ruined so many games against junior oppositions just simply by going out and grinding out massive hundreds and bowling unchanged at, uh, at, at one end. Uh, he's got a George Giffen-like uh, attitude to, uh, to the game. He wants to be involved at, uh, at, at every stage. So his periods of employment, you know, he's got um, he had a period in the post office, he had a period in the, in the home affairs department. Uh, he's punching the clock. He can't wait to get to cricket. He can't wait to get to practice. Uh, he can't wait to be um, involved. Uh, it's almost as though when he's not on the cricket field, he's not completely alive. Uh, he he has periods where he's an amateur and where he's a professional. He seems to regard that distinction as as arbitrary and um, and you know just just a matter of words, uh, which is which is odd because cricket certainly in England and to some degree in Australia was preoccupied with with that distinction. Uh, it's almost as though uh, we had a similar hang-up about the idea of uh, a player being reliant on the game for their income, whether they could play it with with complete freedom. Um, but uh, Australians' response to that distinction was always more pragmatic, and no one was more pragmatic than Warwick. You missed the opportunity there, Gideon, to mention perhaps one of the most famous cricket matches he played in, and indeed it adorns the cover of your book, where he played against, uh, what, uh, 10-year-old boys. Uh, it was three versus 22. Yes. Um, and if anyone knows your book, of, of yes. course, they'd yeah. recognise the cover where he's standing with these two young boys, probably aged mm. seven and eight, and the three of them take on 22 other young boys. And there's, mm. at the time, he's the yeah. captain of Australia or about to be anointed. And as you yes. say, he just, he just loved playing cricket and he took it very seriously. He loved playing cricket and for all his uh, you know, general kind of cynicism about human nature where adults were concerned, he loved the company of children. Uh, he adored children. He seems to have melted in the presence of, uh, of youthful innocence. And I, I chose that, that picture for the front cover because it's such an uncharacteristically relaxed photo of Warwick. You know, there's a smile on his face. 
there's a sense of real uh, pleasure at uh, at the um, at his company and the occasion. Uh, often Warwick emerges as a you know, rather unsympathetic character, as I was saying before. You know, pretty militant, pretty confrontational. But this was another side of uh, of, of Warwick, and it's a consistent aspect of his life. You know, the stories of his kindness to to kids are unceasing and and quite affecting. Like so many cricketers of the golden age, Warwick, of course, was an all-rounder, uh, equally effective with both bat and ball. Um, firstly, what sort of batsman was he? How would you describe his, uh, his technique? Well, I'd say that um, it's only very limited uh, visual evidence of, uh, of, of Warwick's technique. Um, you can see the photos of him in... Uh, Fry and Beldham's great batsman there, methods at a glance. Uh, he's tall, he's strong, he's a big driver, uh, he's a big puller. Um, there's some footage of him taken in 1921, which show that he's surprisingly wristy. Um, he, he's gliding the ball uh, backward a point, he's, he's working the ball off the hip, uh, he's actually probably more supple than uh, than the, those photos make him look, but I think the, uh, the the main thing about him is that he's he's a practical player. You know, he's not a stylish player. His stance is a little bit ungainly. Uh, he's not by any means a sort of a trumper style artist or a duff style pugilist. Um, He's, he's not a particularly fast scorer. He's a hard hitter, but not a particularly fast scorer. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's not a player that you would necessarily go to see for the aesthetic pleasure of it, but every strong team needs its ballast. And in Warwick's period, that's what he provided in the, uh, in the, in the middle order. Perhaps a little bit more aggressive after the First World War. You know, that first 100 that he makes at the SCG in, in 1920, uh, that 158, uh, Bob Crockett, the umpire, said that it was outstanding attacking stroke play, as memorable as anything that Trumper produced. But uh, when compared with Trumper, and it's something which with, with which Warwick would have agreed, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was not a treat for the eye. Um, he was he was reliable. He was a, a a strong reinforcement, and he liked batting long and he liked batting big. And he was hungry and acquisitive and permanent. And that same summary could be suggested for his bowling as well. I mean, he loved bowling for long periods at a time, uh, a bit like George Giffen, I suppose. Um, so he was a he was a leg spinner, um, correct? How would you describe his bowling technique? Well, he wasn't a worn style leg spinner. He wasn't a huge spinner of the ball. Uh, in fact, probably his most effective delivery was the one that didn't spin. Uh, he often used to he bowled stump to stump. Uh, he bought his arm over high. He bowled something that was kind of half a wrong'un. Um, it was 
probably not a full-fledged wrongen, but it was one that maybe on occasion came back somewhat with the arm. Uh, he just relied on constant, uh, unremitting accuracy. Uh, sometimes he settled into a leg theory. He bowled balls into the line of the leg stump and, uh, and tried to challenge the batsman to take him on. He bowled some very long and uh, very economical and rather doer uh, spells. There's a famous one in the first test at Nottingham in 1905 where he bowls 52 overs and takes one for 67. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's harshly criticised by mm-hmm. the English press for, for doing so, who, um, who relied on Australian or... or you know, twittered the Australians about their reputation for uh, for, for aggression and uh, an enterprise, uh, but you know he was one of those bowlers who was capable of holding down an end for a very long time, maybe even bowling in partnerships, as they say these days. So he's a he's a roundhead cricketer. He's he's no cavalier, but uh, but you can't have a team entirely composed of cavaliers. Is there a, uh, in terms of his bowling, I'm just uh, trying to put him and his technique in context, is there a modern equivalent or a modern uh, bowler whom you would liken his style to? He wasn't as, say, quick as a, a Neil Kumble, Um but did he have, I mean, Kumble, I think by his own admission, wasn't the biggest turner of the ball, but he had that... Mm. Um, unrelenting uh, accuracy. Uh, is there someone who you would liken him to for modern audiences? Well, I mean, that's not a bad parallel. I, I would say that if Warwick was around now, he'd settle almost naturally into that very quick style of leg spin, bowling stump to stump, probably quite conducive to a t- to T20 cricket. Now, he's closer to a modern leg spinner than he is to someone like you know, a Colin McCool or a Richie Benno, who, you know, bowls pretty slowly, flights the ball, tries to get it above the level of the eyes. Uh, Warwick was there chiefly to uh, take wickets by attrition. And, of course, that is very much, uh, that very much goes to my image of him as an anticipator of modern cricket. Thanks for listening to part one of this episode on Warwick Armstrong with my guest, Gideon Haig. Keep an eye out for part two, in which we discuss Warwick's use of leg theory, his involvement in the Big Six dispute, and his overall legacy to the game of cricket. My name is Tom Ford. Thanks for listening. <laughs>